Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? The words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray as we come now to God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to study your word, and in particular this passage, which is a passage in the Bible about the Bible, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit uh, to hear and truly perceive what it is that Jesus means. We pray this in his name. Amen. I remember uh, some years ago one conversation I had with a man who was uh, studying theology at a rather elite secular, I suppose you would say, uh, university. We'd had many conversations about some of the challenges of uh, taking passages like this seriously, uh, not one dot, not one iota. There are all sorts of intellectual challenges that this uh, brings up, and we'll consider some of them uh, this morning. And as this uh, man was uh, wrestling with some of these things, we, we talked over a number of months, even years. Apparently, at one point or other, he, he now tells me, uh, I forgot that I said this, but uh, he tells me it was a seismic moment. At one point or another, as I was listening to him talk, and you know, we'd laid the groundwork relationally, I, I, I knew him, and, and intellectually, uh, I'd struggled with some of the same things that he was struggling with over the years. I just looked at him and said, it's God's word, stop playing around. He now teaches uh, the Bible and takes it very seriously, I believe. It's God's Word. Stop playing around. I say, well, how can you, how can you possibly think it's that simple? Uh, you read the Old Testament, Jesus is referring to the law and the prophets, the, the, the traditional summary of the whole Old Testament. You read it and you find, uh, uh, you do not mix uh, different kinds of garment, uh, thread with one another. I mean, this is absurd and even gross. Go into a certain part of the world and kill all that you find there. 
How can you possibly take those things seriously? Well, it's a good question, and Jesus answers it for us in the most simplest and yet the most profound ways by, by saying, it is all fulfilled in me, he says. It's all pointing to me. You want to make sense of the Bible, Jesus says. You have to make sense of me. Now, the reason why this question naturally arose at this point in his Sermon on the Mount is that uh, Jesus was beginning, it was coming clear, uh, to make some fairly remarkable claims. Uh, He uh, sits down with his disciples, chapter 5, verse 2, and he begins to teach them. And as he teaches them, it becomes increasingly clear, and by the end, it's crystal clear what he's saying. So if you come with me to the end of this sermon, chapter 7, uh, verse 29, they are amazed at his teaching. For he taught as one who had authority and not as uh, the scribes, nor as their teachers of the Bible. That is, they're amazed not at his uh, ethic, but at his person. Who he is. Who does he think he is? He's making very strong claims to authority, to being the king, teaching on the kingdom of heaven. And we've seen already that this is beginning to make progress. He's described uh, what it means to follow him in terms of the Beatitudes, uh, what I called last week a Beatitude Christian. That is someone who is poor in spirit, empty of themselves, filled with God. Such people, Jesus says, are going to be and are indeed the sword of the earth and the light of the world, global spiritual impact. And so it would be natural enough at this point in his discourse, at this point in his argument to say, well, Jesus, are you now changing the Scripture? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is God's Word. I'm not playing around. It's all fulfilled in me. So you make sense of the Bible because Jesus fulfills it. He explains that in three ways. Uh, Verses 18 uh, verse uh, to, nine, to 20, explain each of those th- three ways. 18, I think, can be summarized as textually fulfilling it. 19, doctrinally fulfilling it. And third, uh, 20, morally. Let's look at those uh, together briefly. Textually, verse 18. Uh, not one iota nor one dot will disappear. Iota was Greek for yod, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Dot in Greek means horn. It probably refers to one of the tiny marks or hooks that distinguish some Hebrew letters from other Hebrew letters. Every T crossed, every I dotted. That's what Jesus is saying. None of it's going to go. Why? Because it's all, gonna, it's all accomplished in Him. It's all fulfilled in Him. Till heaven and earth, that is the new, new creation comes, it, it's not going to disappear. The original autocrafts have this inerrant authority. And of course, we all know that there's been a lot of criticism of that position in the last couple of hundred years. Uh, but what must not be thought, it is a myth and it is not true, is that that criticism has come to some kind of assured scientific conclusion. Uh, One leading uh, New Testament scholar describes the state of higher biblical criticism like this. He says, it's like finding yourself in the middle of a rugby field. There are five teams and ten bulls. 
There's all kinds of excitement. Everybody is tackling everybody, and everybody thinks he's on the winning team. Or we might say it's like being on the Super Bowl with five teams and ten balls. By the way, did you know that according to the uh, National Chicken Council, 1.23 billion chicken wings will be consumed today? Imagine the Super Bowl with five teams and ten balls. Chaos, in other words. Well, uh, a good way of thinking about this is in terms of uh, some rules of historical engagement. Eyewitness, transmission, genre on objectivity. Let me just mention these very briefly to you. Eyewitness. J.A.T. Robinson, Anglican Dean, a lecturer in theology at Trinity College, Cambridge University, uh, not himself a particularly conservative uh, Christian, wrote a book called Redating the New Testament, in which he argued all of the New Testament should be rightly dated before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That is certainly within eyewitness. Now, not everyone believes that, but it is a defendable position, according to J.A.T. Robinson. Transmission of texts. Julius Caesar's invasion of uh, Britain is recorded in the Gallic Wars. The oldest surviving copy we have is 900 years after the event, and we have in total 10 ancient copies existing. The Gospels, the earliest is contemporaneous or 35 years afterwards, the John Ryland's fragment, very famous, 125 AD. And in total, we have 24,000 ancient copies. Now, it's true they're not all full copies. Some of them are fragments, but nonetheless, 24,000 is a lot. A.N. Sherwin-White, historian of Rome, wrote this about 20th century study of the gospel. It's astonishing that while Greco-Roman historians have been growing in confidence, the 20th century study of the gospel narratives, starting from no less promising material, have taken a gloomy turn. There's no need for it. We can have confidence in the transmission, eyewitness transmission genre. Is this really claiming authority, or is it just a myth? Tolstoy said, the gospels are clearly not a novel. He should know. He wrote good novels. They claim historical events. They are a bit like a documentary. Not a biography, but a documentary. Things are selected for a purpose. It doesn't mean it's not true. There is selection that's going on. Not a myth. C.S. Lewis, who should know about this, professor of medieval and renaissance literature at Oxford and Cambridge, he said, I was by now too experienced literary criticism to regard the Gospels as myths. They had not the mythical taste. Nothing else in all literature was just like this. And no person was like the person it depicted. As real, as recognizable as Plato's Socrates or Boswell's Johnson, yet also numinous. He writes so well, doesn't he, Lewis? Lit by a light from beyond the world, God. The claims that it is making. It's God's word. Stop playing around. Objectivity. Do they have something to be gained by making up some story? Well, the New Testament writers clearly believe what they wrote, but they had very little to gain in a worldly sense from what they uh, described, for many of them were killed. And who would die for something that they knew was a lie? Now, the great difficulty with this passage is not whether Jesus said it, but that he said it. In fact, I was rather amused to discover in one commentary uh, the poor man devoted over 50 pages to arguing that Jesus could not really have possibly said this. But he did. 
You say, what's the application of all that intellectual information? Here it is. You say you have a high view of Jesus. No one could be greater than him. He died for the sins of the world, as we'll be remembering later. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who, who looked with favor on the woman caught in adultery, we, we are told. No one, no one could be greater than Jesus. If you have a high view of Jesus, you must have a high view of Scripture. You must. But Jesus did. What does that mean? How do we put it together? There are some strange parts of the Bible. Well, we put it together as fulfilled in Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And this, verse 19, is how it fits together doctrinally. Even the least of these commandments, certainly the greatest, are all fulfilled in Him. Even the very least is about the kingdom of heaven that He's teaching about, that He is the King and the kingdom of heaven. Even the least. And we should obey that and teach that. It's all fulfilled in him. Uh, the, uh, I'm told that one of the funniest jokes that was ever um, announced, uh, it's uh, claimed to be one of the funniest jokes because two million votes were cast for it on the internet. It goes like this, a couple of New Jersey hunters in the woods, one falls to the ground, doesn't seem to be breathing, his eyes rolled back in his head. Other guy calls the emergency services, my friend is dead, what can I do? The operator, just take it easy, let's make sure he really is dead. There's a silence. A shot is heard. Guy's voice comes back on the line, okay, now what? <laughs> Literal interpretation. Sometimes I think people interpret the Bible like uh, interpreting William Wordsworth's poetry. You know, I wandered lonely as a cloud. What does that mean, they say to themselves? It means that we should get in a, fl- a, fly- in a hot air balloon and fly up. It's poetry. Some of the Bible is poetry. Some of it is prophecy. Some of it is history. Some of it is law. And it's all fulfilled in Jesus. Why? Because it all points to him like one great funnel pointing to the cross and then from the cross out. The ceremonial law, all fulfilled in Jesus. The sacrificial law, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all fulfilled in Jesus. The the book of Hebrews talks about this at length. You can read it when you get home. All fulfilled in Him, and it all is now proclaimed from Him. Leviticus, not the most exciting Sunday afternoon read in the world. Until you understand it's all fulfilled in Him. In Him. The purity laws, how, how strange, it's all fulfilled in him. Now he is the pure one and in him we have purity of heart through his righteousness and the work of his spirit. It's all pointing to him, the very least to the greatest. So the year of living biblically, A.J. Jacobs in 2007 wrote this book with lots of strange ideas of how to put together living biblically. It's a misunderstanding of Scripture. It's all fulfilled in Him. If you want to live biblically, what do you do? You follow Him. Of course, the Pharisees didn't get that. They were relaxing the law. They couldn't understand how to fulfill its righteous requirements, and so they 
added in human tradition or small print at the bottom that looked very righteous but really was a way to relax it and dilute it. Instead, Jesus is saying that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven will teach and practice every part of the law as fulfilled in him. Now, I think this has great application for us today. We seem to live at a time when there are celebrity leaders, and they use those things for good purpose. And ever you get in such situation, be a servant and use it for God's purpose. But Jesus here does not say that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the celebrity. The greatest in the kingdom of heaven teaches and practices even the least of these commandments. It's obedience. That's the secret source of greatness. <laughs> obedience. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, obey every command as fulfilled in me. Then you'll be great. You say, how, how can I do that? How can I move from, instead of asking, am I allowed to do this? Can I get away with this? Instead to ask, how can I teach and obey even the least of these commandments? I want to do that. How do I do it? Well, third verse 20, morally. It's fulfilled in Jesus textually, doctrinally. Verse 20, morally. What a statement of Jesus's. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> How could this be? How could our righteousness ever possibly exceed that of these famously fastidious scribes and Pharisees. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. You'll find an illustration of it. And uh, look at uh, the calling of a tax collector. Uh, verse 9, Jesus is going on. He sees a man named Matthew. He's at the tax collector's uh, stall there. He calls him to follow him, and he does. And then he goes and has dinner, verse 10, at uh, Matthew's house. And there are other tax collectors and sinners who are with him and uh, Jesus' disciples as well. The Pharisees, who are very keen on the idea of righteousness, see this. And so they uh, begin to try and drive a wedge between Jesus and his disciples by asking a difficult question of his disciples. You think your teacher is very special, but look at him. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus uh, hears about this, and he answers with a wonderful picture. I'm a doctor. I've come for people who are not healthy but sick. And then he quotes, doesn't he? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The whole of Scripture is fulfilled in him. And we don't have time to look at how Hosea is completed in Jesus, but it is. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
And here it is. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So what is this righteousness that is greater even than the Pharisaic righteousness? This righteousness is not our righteousness. It's not a human righteousness. Jesus has been teaching on this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So the kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about far exceeds the Pharisees' righteousness. Why? Because it's not human righteousness. It is God's righteousness that comes as we hunger and thirst for Him Himself, and we are filled then with His righteousness. Once we have that new birth, as the Bible elsewhere calls it, by the Holy Spirit, not human righteousness, God's righteousness, we develop an internal heart change, a heart righteousness that is revealed in a change of practice. No longer are we looking for wiggle room to get around the clear commands of Scripture. You've heard it was said, uh, you know, love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy we begin to ask, how can I really and truly obey this command of Scripture? Our whole heart motivation changes, and our ability now is in place by the work of the Spirit to begin to obey from the heart. And so Jesus teaches from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, you've heard that it was said this, but I say to you, each time saying it's a heart righteousness, a change by the Holy Spirit. I rather like the story of one uh, teacher. He was walking down the corridors at, uh, at school one day and he noticed there was a, a student who was outside of the classroom during class time. And so the teacher, of course, being uh, conscientious, asked the student what class he was uh, cutting. The student replied like this, um, well, like, you know, it's, like, I really don't think, like, it's not really important because, you know, like, I, I don't get, like, anything out of it. Or words to that effect. The teacher looked at the student, smiled and said, it's English class, isn't it? Behavior matters. There needs to be a heart change. And if there is, salt of the earth, light of the world. I'm glad we've got some uh, books on dating coming up. It's, of course, going to be February the 14th for too long. <laughs> I think uh, feminine appeal would particularly appeal to the men among us. February the 12th, there's another uh, event. It's uh, Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Mark your calendar. H.T. Uh, Webster, a cartoonist, his, uh, he's got one cartoon which is often repeated and uh, reprinted on that day. It's called Hardin County, 1809. Uh, two backswoodsmen are talking. 
And they talk like this. Any news down the village, Esri? Well, Squire McLean's gone to Washington to see Madison sworn in, and old Spellman tells me this Bonaparte fellow has captured most of Spain. What's new out here, neighbor? Nothing, nothing at all, except for a new baby born to Tom Lincoln's. Nothing ever happens out here. There they are, these Galilean peasants gathered around Jesus. And they have the opportunity for a righteousness far exceeding that of the Pharisees, the greatest religious teachers of their day. Because it's all fulfilled in him. All fulfilled in him. All fulfilled in him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we study your word, help us to see it as all fulfilled in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.